We're also rounding out a sermon series today. We've been for two months following this Old Testament character, Jacob, around from the book of Genesis. And uh, Jacob is a character that many of us resonate with. Many of us find ourselves in Jacob's story. And you may or may not find yourself in Jacob's story, but I think chances are, if you look closely enough, you'll find part of your journey in Jacob's journey. And today, I'm sad to say, frankly, that we're saying goodbye to this uh, sermon series. This is our seventh and final week of the Jacob series. And we're going to do that by, I believe, asking ourselves the most important question we'll ever ask ourselves. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, challenge you to answer the question that I think matters more than any other question you'll ever ask a little bit later. But as we look at Jacob, we've been following him around for two months. We've been um, sort of taken by his stubbornness in his early years. In the first half of his life, he lived like uh, he was missing something. You ever watch somebody who was obviously missing something? Have you ever kept an eye on someone at a coffee shop or somewhere that had obviously lost something and the, the, the frenetic sort of frantic nature in which they're looking for that missing something? That's how Jacob lived for the first part of his life. And many of us can relate to that. We don't really know what we're supposed to be looking for. Um, we just know we're missing something. And so we try a little bit of everything to fill that something. But as hard as we try, we never really can. And that's what we see with Jacob in the early part of his life. He gets fixated on one thing after another. And no matter how hard he tries to fill this void in his heart, he cannot fill it with the stuff he gets fixated on. And this is interesting because Jacob, like most of us, was raised with everything he could have possibly wanted. He had a great life, loving family. He had a, a wealthy family. He had a, a future that was secure and comfortable. He uh, was given uh, a part of the inheritance from his father. God had his blessing on Jacob, which may not sound like much to you, but what that meant for Jacob is that he had a legacy. He had a part in God's plan to save the world through the promise God made to Abraham. So God said, Jacob, you're the one that carry forth this promise in your generation. But even with all of that, Jacob lacked one thing, and we uncovered that one thing last week. It was faith. Jacob lacked faith. He did not lack belief. And you can believe in God and not have faith because belief is easy. Any of us can believe in an abstract form of God, an intelligent being behind the universe. Most of us are believers. Few of us are faithful. Few of us have faith in the sense of a personal relationship with God built on trust. And so um, Jacob lacked faith. And because he lacked that personal relationship with God, he didn't really trust the promises of God. And so he sought to try and fulfill the benefits of those promises himself. He scratched any claw. He got fixated on his brother's inheritance. He wanted his brother's inheritance for himself. He was jealous because Esau's inheritance would be, would be bigger than his. And so he tricked his brother out of it. He was fixated on it, and that didn't satisfy. And then he got fixated on his father's blessing. Even though God had already promised him an eternal godly blessing, he still wanted his father's blessing. He got fixated on it, and he lied and deceived his father while he was on his deathbed. So fixated was he. After that, uh, he had to run away from home for obvious reasons. His brother wanted to kill him, and he was isolated and alone. And... Uh, he found himself being fixated on this idea of romantic love. You ever known someone who kept falling in love all the time and you told them they're not really in love, they're in love with what? 
the thought of being in love. <laughs> that was Jacob, I think. He got fixated on Rachel and Rachel's beauty, and he decided she was the one to fill the void in his life. She was the one to finally give him the blessing that he was chasing his whole life. He was so intoxicated by his love for Rachel that he agreed to work for her father for free for seven years, which is ridiculous. It's totally out of line. But when you fixate on things that are not worthy of fixation, you do unreasonable things. Because when you're not fulfilled by it, you seek more of it. And everything you think is going to fulfill you and doesn't leaves you chasing more desperately after the next thing. And so after the seven years of working for free for his future father-in-law, Laban, the father-in-law, pulls a fast one on Jacob. He out Jacob's Jacob. He tricks Jacob the same way Jacob tricked his father in a dark room at night when he was blind. His father was actually blind. Jacob just drank himself blind. And he woke up the morning after his wedding next to Rachel's older, uglier, cross-eyed sister, <laughs> Leah. And Leah loved Jacob, but Jacob refused to love her back. Leah loved him, she prayed for him, she gave him children, and all she wanted was his affection in return. But he could not because he was fixated on Rachel, and so he agreed to work for another seven years, 14 years for this Rachel. She was a completely different person by the time he finally got her. And, and so it didn't matter because it wasn't really about Rachel, I don't think. I think it was about this fixation that Jacob had prior to really coming into a faithful relationship with God. Again, he believed in God, but he was fixated on all these other things, identity, affirmation, comfort, money, uh, sex. He, he did get fixated on money, by the way, after his family life was situated. He was put in charge of his father-in-law's flocks, and he developed because, I think because, he was jealous of the thought of his brother Esau having gotten the whole inheritance to himself because Jacob ran away from home. And have you ever heard the phrase, comparison is the thief of joy? Anybody? Comparison is the thief of joy? Anybody on Instagram? Imagine Jacob on Instagram scrolling through Esau's feed, seeing all the Cabo vacations and all the cars and houses, thinking that should be his. Jacob, in turn, develops the Bronze Age equivalent of a Ponzi scheme involving sheep and goats and stuff. And he steals, like, thousands of dollars from his father-in-law, who's trying to give him a future. But, you know, enough is never enough when you're fixated on something in an unhealthy way, when you're elevating a created thing to the place of creator. It's never enough, and that's what Jacob does, and we all do when we seek ultimate satisfaction in things that are not ultimate things. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, put it this way. He said, what is more natural to us as human beings than to seek happiness in the creature rather than the creator? To seek that satisfaction in the works of his hands, which can only be found in God. All right, so the things we seek satisfaction in are not evil things. They're actually good things. Pleasure is good. Joy, happiness, love, romantic love, sex, uh, food, all of it, success, and money can be really good things. They're intended to be good gifts. But when you take a good gift and make it ultimate, it's not good anymore. That's not where it belongs. But when you have an ultimate thing, the ultimate thing in the ultimate place and everything else in place underneath it, those good things are great. And they bring you joy. Joy. 
and satisfaction and fulfillment because they're not ultimate in your life. Now, the problem for us, obviously, is that we make that switch. And this is a universal truth for us at different points in our lives. We all do this. So if you feel like I'm talking right at you and nobody else, you're in good company. Like, this is all of us. Trust me. But what I would, what I would propose today is that the act of seeking fulfillment, ultimate, that's an important word, ultimate fulfillment, your highest fulfillment, is, uh, by definition, worship. That is your worship. And I know that is not what you think of when you think of worship. When you think of worship, you think 1105 on Sunday morning in a certain building with a certain preacher or with a certain community or whatever, a certain sign on the door. That's worship hour. I want to I expand your view of worship outside the realm of mere religion and help you to understand that, theologically speaking, we were all made for worship, and we are all worshipers. The question is, what or whom do you worship? Not do you worship, but what do you worship or whom? And I believe this is the most important question you're ever going to answer. And I'm going to explain that for the rest of the sermon, but I believe that there is so much on the line when it comes to your answer to that question. What am I worshiping or whom and why? Now, whenever people seek ultimate fulfillment in created things, we don't usually call that worship, do we? Whenever someone is uh, obsessed with looking good all the time, and that's all they think about is looking good or looking a little better than the last time they went out and putting the right face on and the clothes and the appearance and the car, everything is about appearance. We don't call it worship. We call it vanity, right? And they're vain. Um, and and that, that's kind of how we sum, sum it up. And, and the same is true for somebody who just wants more success in life and they want to work a little harder and do a little better in school or do a little better in work and, and they want to climb the ladder. And we look up to these people. We call them ambitious. They're not worshiping. They're ambitious. Whenever a, a man, maybe um, some of you ladies here have been on a date with a man who, um, who makes you feel like you're the most important thing in his life and you're just amazing until it's clear to him that you, he won't be sharing your bed tonight and then you might as well not exist. Anyone? All right, y'all don't have to speak up, but y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> we don't say he's worshiping the altar of sex. We say he's a perv <laughs> or, or a freak or something, you know, or, or even worse, we say, well, he's just being a man. That's awful, because that doesn't really sum up what's really happening. And when a woman you go on a date with, guys, when a woman is all into you and she thinks you're the best thing ever and she makes you feel like a million bucks until she realizes you don't have a million bucks. <laughs> and she sees your civic. <laughs> we don't tend to say that's worshiping money. We tend to say she's a what? A gold digger. Well, I'm not saying she's a gold digger. <laughs> I'm so glad that my church is full of Kanye fans. <laughs> Never been prouder. Um, no, uh, I'm saying she is, has chosen what she worships. She is a worshiper of a specific thing. And it's not an ultimate thing, but she's worshiping it like it is. Like it will fix her problems. And so is the guy on the date um, 
who's fixated on sex, and so is the ambitious one who's fixated on ascending the ranks, and so is every other worshiper that puts in place of the ultimate God something that is less than ultimate. We all worship these things, and uh, we seek the, this fulfillment in them. And uh, what Wesley's saying is that uh, that's a natural reaction to our fallen state because we're still made for worship, but we don't understand um, how worship is supposed to work or who we're supposed to be worshiping. I would submit that worship is not a religious act. Worship is the posture of trust and submission that a man takes before his ultimate thing. Worship is a posture of trust and submission that a woman takes before her ultimate thing. So, most of us have become accustomed to saying worship is something that happens one hour a week and it's for religious people. And the more secular our culture becomes, the more foreign the concept of worship has become. And for most people, and some of y'all are real churchy because you're here and that's fine, no judgment, but for most people, people out there, worship feels like going back in time. Feels like going back uh, a couple hundred years to the great revival of the old American West or like the, a couple thousand years. We might as well be, you know, an Incan tribe like surrounding a ziggurat with, you know, virgin sacrifices or something. I don't know, but like this is weird for people that aren't churchy. And if you've been in church your whole life, you've forgotten how weird it is. But if it's your first time here today, a first time in a worship service in a long time, or if you can just imagine what that would be like, how suspect everything would seem when you walk into a worship service because the parking's free and there's no cost of admission and everybody's creepily happy and uh, a little too nice and the coffee's free and it's pretty delicious and there's free donuts and, uh, and there's a free mug they want to give me and there's a free Bible they want to give me and all this weirdness and you walk in and you take your seat and you wonder why everybody's facing the same way and why is there a stage and what's about to happen and the music starts and it's a little too loud and maybe it's not your style of music but the lead guy has such a nice smile that you can <laughs> overlook it and so... So that's fine, and then, uh, you know, in case you're uncomfortable, they pass around a basket full of money, and you take some, and <laughs> make you feel better. And then the guy comes out, you saw on the website with the pretty wife when you wondered what he did to get her to marry him, and he must be rich, and uh, <laughs> you were wrong, so wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and then this guy talks for like an hour, solid hour, and... Uh, Nobody heckles or gets up and leaves, and you wonder what power this guy has over these people. <laughs> Is this some kind of hypnosis? And then he says, let us pray, and all the heads drop and eyes close, and you're like, yeah, hypnosis. I knew it. It's very weird. It's a very weird experience. And my concern here, I'm not um, just trying to make jokes, but my concern here is that we so have separated the concept of worship from everyday life that we fail to communicate to people that worship is universal. It's a universal human experience. And it, even for you, if you're religious, if you're a Christian person, like it doesn't just happen here. You worship in every facet of your life. One of the strangest elements of worship for a lot of people is the act in many like uh, charismatic churches of, of raising your hands in worship. And uh, some of you are so freaked out by this uh, this simple motion. You're not anywhere else, just at church. Like Texans games, 
fine. Uh, you know, uh, Aggie games is okay. Uh, shut up, whatever. <laughs> what a... What a cult. My gosh. All right. <clears throat> Man. Thought, thought Christianity was weird. All right. So... It's okay everywhere else except in church. And uh, some of you will make like wholesale judgments of an entire community of people based on the percentage of people inside a room with their hands up. And if you visit a church for the first time and there's 100% of people with their hands up, every single hand is up from the first song to the last, you won't even stay. You'll just get up and walk out because you know it's a matter of time before the snakes come out and then you leave. If, if it's just half the hands that are up, you'll stay for that service to be nice, um, but you probably won't go back. What you're looking for is that 5 to 10% ratio of hands up. Uh, and that's why you come to the story, I think, because that's what we usually have. Because I think you're comforted by the idea of there being some people in the room that care enough about God to raise their hands, but not so many that it puts pressure on you to do it. <laughs> I, think, I think that's the ratio we look for, and then... Uh, if it's 0%, you're um, Episcopalian, right? That's my, I think you're just, uh, and that's, that's okay. Uh, I think we'll all be in heaven together one day. So somebody sent me this uh, illustrated menu of options uh, for those of you who may be considering getting into the hand-raising game. Uh, this right here is some old school story material. I shared this about three years ago, and I couldn't not share it. Again, so it goes from rookie level all the way down to expert level. I will say that the 1105 service is the closest to expert that we have. We've got a couple of, uh, couple of touchdowns happening here, but uh, 845 is definitely the elbow flap, which I <laughs> kind of dig, uh, and I've yet to see a Mufasa. So, uh, still room for growth here. All right, we gotta move on. We gotta move on. Take that down. Uh, I, I'll post that to social media so y'all can enjoy it uh, later. So, <laughs> she, she really enjoyed it. Um, so, um, what we see in Jacob's life is that there was this first half and second half. And the, the two halves are divided not by years, but by a certain event that happened, which I called last week or two weeks ago his justification moment, the moment when his belief became faith. And that was the moment that he wrestled with God all night. God came and wrestled with him, and, and, and Jacob would not let him go until he was sure of God's blessing in his life. And that's when Jacob stopped being a mere believer in God, and he started having faith in God. But as we talked about last week, even after you come to faith in God, you're still going to make mistakes. And Jacob continued to make mistakes. And it doesn't mean that his conversion was invalid or if you're baptized today. It doesn't mean your, your baptism is not taken if you still have problems this week. It's how it's supposed to work. The difference is you're open to the grace of God now. And, and the, the circumstances in your life don't affect your relationship with God like maybe they would have before. Because faith is walking by trust. Knowing that you're in the palm of his hand no matter what. 
And so Jacob made these mistakes and he had to deal with some consequences. His home was a broken home. It was a dysfunctional family because he made the same mistake his parents and grandparents made by favoring one child over all the other ones. So he favored Joseph to such an extent that his brothers could not abide him anymore. They just couldn't stand him. And they sold him as a slave. It was unthinkable what they did. But it just tells you the depth of their, uh, of their grief and brokenness because of their father's preference. But they told Jacob that Joseph was dead, that he had been killed by a wild animal. So as far as Jacob knew, his favorite son was dead. And um, you know, he was thrown into this deep season of grief. And he didn't let go of his faith in God, but he was thrown into a deep grief. And some of you have been in a deep, deep grief. Jacob said, I will never be comforted from this day on. I will take this darkness to my grave, he said after he was told Joseph had died. And some of you all know exactly what that's like, but God was not done with Jacob, and God is not done with you if you trust him. Now, obviously, Joseph was not really dead. Uh, he was very much alive in Egypt, ascending the ranks in Pharaoh's court and became Pharaoh's vice regent and chief advisor. And we're going to pick up today in Genesis 46, where um, Jacob has found out that Joseph was alive all along and they're about to be reunited. And this, after years of being apart and deep in grief, both of them really, this is where they are reunited in Genesis 46, verses 28 to 30. Here we go. Uh, Jacob had sent Judah, this was another one of his sons, ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel. That's Jacob's God-given name, um, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him. So Joseph presented himself to his father for the first time in years and then fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. That's a little weird wording, but you can imagine his head just buried here for a good while. Y'all seen homecoming videos, you know, like soldier homecomings and people that have been reunited after a long absence. That's, that's what's happening here. Two people that thought maybe they'd never see each other again are brought back together. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face and know that you are still alive. So here, Jacob is still um, struggling between his faith in God and his flaws as a human being because he thinks that now that he has Joseph back, that his life is fulfilled, that God has done with him. And some of you have decided because of you're retired or your family has grown, or everybody's moved away, or maybe you never got married and you're alone and you're empty nester or whatever, you think God may be done with you and your best years are behind you. And you would um, be surprised if you had a little faith and trust in God what he's got left for you to do. Because Jacob had 17 years left to live after this. He lived 17 more years in the land of Egypt, reuniting his family, bringing his broken, dysfunctional family back together and setting them up for the next chapter of God's story that he was gonna tell through them. In the next chapter of Genesis, in chapter 47, we see how Jacob's life comes to an end. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you'll show me kindness and faithfulness. The hand under your thigh thing, again, sounds a little weird on paper. This was um, an act of homage or respect as someone prepared to die, especially this is, if you can imagine a pallbearer. That's kind of what he's asking him to do here. Do not bury me in Egypt, 
But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out, to, out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. And I will do as you say, Joseph said. Swear to me, Jacob said. And then Joseph swore to him. And Israel worshipped. Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. An old man nearing his death. He worshipped God as he leaned on the end of his staff. The man who spent much of his life fixated on other things worshipped God. In the second half of his life, he worshiped God and God helped him put together all the things he had broken in the first half. He worshiped God and everything else fell into proper place when he put God at the top where only God belongs. We know that he trusted God because he said in the passage that we just read, can we go back a slide? I'm sorry. But he said in the passage when he's talking to Joseph, Take my body and bury me where my fathers are buried. You got to know a little bit. This is kind of inside baseball Genesis talk here. But his fathers were buried in Canaan, the land God had promised their family. And here they are in Egypt. And Jacob says, take me back to Canaan and bury me there because I know God's going to bring us home. Even if it's after I die, God's going to bring my people home to the land he promised us. And I want to be close to where you are. This is a statement of faith. God's not done with us in Egypt. We've got a long way to go. God's still at work. His promises are still intact. And so this is a statement of faith, so much faith that Jacob is mentioned in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11, the best faith chapter in the Bible where it says, by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on his staff. In Hebrews eleven twenty one. Jacob worshiped and every one does. You worship. You may be a little hard of heart toward Christianity, toward guys like me, toward preachers, um, evangelicals, etc. And I understand the church has done plenty of harm in the world and pushed plenty of people away. I pray that your heart is not so hardened as to make you blind to the fact that you are worshiping something every day. And that there is more at risk in this choice you make about what to worship than your daily happiness or your happiness in this life. We believe, uh, as most people do, that, um, that this life doesn't end when we die. That our consciousness or our existence goes on through eternity. And the, the question um, that we're asking today is so important because of how integral the act of worship is. And whatever you grow accustomed to seeking ultimate fulfillment from in this life has every reason to continue in the next. Not just for 70 years will you be seeking ultimate fulfillment in non-ultimate things, but for eternity. And what happens here is that we over time begin to reflect we become a reflection of whatever the object of our worship is. And I quoted Tozer last week. I'm going to do it again this week. This is just too good to miss. Tozer says, he opens his book this way. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And your God can be the God or it can be any lowercase g God. The most important thing about you. And the history of mankind will show that no people has ever risen above its religion and that man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. This is why it's so important to fix your eyes on the one true God, the only ultimate satisfaction or fulfillment of your deepest needs and wants and desires. 
Because anything short of that will leave you wanting and needing more and more of that. And this is a truism, no matter what religion or not you claim. If you, if you put money as the ultimate thing in your life, it's going to satisfy you a little bit, but if you get a little more of it, it satisfies you a little less, strangely. And then the more and more you want it, the less and less it satisfies, and over time, the less of yourself you become. As that pursuit of a false, lesser God robs you of your humanity, of the image of God within you. And the same is true for sex. When we put sex at the center of our lives, or um, success, or beauty, the question is, I didn't really bring this up with the other services, but I think it's important. The question is, what does that fixation look like, not just over these 70 years, but over eternity? What does that become when it's never enough and you devolve in your pursuit of it, what do you become when you worship something other than God? So you take more and more and it gives you less and less. But when you worship the creator rather than the created things, the opposite is true. God gives you more and more of himself. It's not just that you're taking and taking and taking. God freely gives more and more of himself and you want more and more of him. And the beautiful thing that happens when somebody really worships God with their everyday life is that they become a greater, clearer reflection of God to the world around them. And they become a reflection of his mercy, of his grace, his joy. Their mood is not circumstantial. They walk in joy and peace and love and forgiveness because they've worshiped God and they've found their ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in him. I think that is exactly what Tozer is talking about in, in this quote. And so it begs the question, as we close the series, what or who do you worship? You're putting something or someone at the center. And it can be a good thing that you're putting at the center. But if you're putting a good thing in the ultimate place, it will never satisfy. Some of you need to hear me say that it could even be your marriage that you've idolized, or your spouse, or your kids, or your job. And these are good gifts. But when you put them in the ultimate position and you set them and yourself up for disaster and failure, because no person or relationship can satisfy what you're looking for except God himself. After worshiping God, Jacob, in Genesis 49, 33, Jacob drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Worshiping God is not a Sunday morning thing. Worshiping God is waking up with him walking with him throughout your day, knowing that he's there, trusting he will guide your steps, trusting him the same in good times and in bad, and then showing up here and who knows, maybe lifting a hand once in a while. <laughs> you don't have to, don't feel pressure. We're gonna have like half the number of people here next week because I said that. It's not a litmus test, but I will say this. It is, uh, it is true, <laughs> it's gonna scare some of you, that the more you learn to worship Jesus, the more your posture, both in prayer and in worship, takes on an air of submission and trust. So, I used to be the biggest critic of Christian worship, 
and I used to sneer in the back. I would get up and go get three cups of coffee during a sermon like this, and I would just think, this isn't me. I would turn on Christian radio and just laugh at it. I would laugh at Christians that, you know, did all these different hand motions and eyes closed. and It just seemed a little over the top. But I was proud and stubborn. And most of all, I was afraid of what God would do with me if I opened my heart to him and worshiped him. And that was six years ago, and here we are. You never know what God can do with you, no matter what your age or your lot in life. And you open your heart to him and worship him and trust him and surrender to him. He is the only one who deserves that spot in your life, that place of reverence and awe. And it's not that putting him there will take away from your other relationships. No, he will give you more to add to those relationships. Put him first. And when you breathe your last breath, you will breathe it in peace. And you'll be gathered together with your people, just like Jacob was. Because the one you know in this life and worship will gather you up and call you daughter or son for eternity. Would you pray with me? Jesus, soften our hearts and help us <clears throat> to not be afraid or ashamed to see that we were indeed created for worship, but we weren't created just to worship anything or anybody. We were created to worship and find our ultimate satisfaction in you. You are our God. We surrender to you. We submit ourselves to you because we trust you because you are full of grace and truth. Thank you. Jesus, for revealing yourself to us so clearly. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.